All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and as you can tell from the music, and we start today with the Olympic Games and the possible Vancouver Olympics. It was so nice. Should we do it twice? Vancouver hosted the Winter Games in 2010. Should we go for it again? Bid to host the Olympics in 2030. Now, Vancouver City Council uh, deferring any decision on this yesterday after considering a staff report, but keeping the door open here to a possible, possible bid for the 2030 Olympic Games. All right, let's talk about how we did this the first time, and should we go for it again? Got a great guest for you, Glenn Clark, the former Premier of British Columbia. He was a key part of the original bid for the 2010 Olympic Games. Doesn't need a whole lot more introduction, I don't think. Glenn Clark, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. It's really nice to talk to you again. Um, let's go back in the uh, the way back machine here in uh, 1998. So we're really going back, and you were the premier, and you got on board with an Olympic bid, this crazy idea for Vancouver to host the 2010 Games. Can you recall, like, when you first this was first pitched to you, and what you thought at the time? Yeah, there was a, a, a group in Vancouver, and of course, Ian Waddell was the recently oh, yeah. just passed away was the yeah. tourism minister, and he was of course a relentless promoter of British Columbia and tourism in general. And he came to see me and said we should support this. And you might recall that the uh, Quebec City had had the rights for Canada and had just recently lost the international uh, rights to host the Olympics, and of course, Calgary had 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 the Winter Olympics previously, and so. When we decided to proceed in British Columbia, we had to first win the Canadian rights, and we were up against Quebec and against Calgary. Right. And so it was actually quite hotly contested, uh, and, uh, and of course, Quebec had the inside track because they'd already, they already had won the rights and were, were just simply trying again. Okay, and I know Arthur Griffiths, of course, a very well-known local businessman, was key on this as well. Did he pitch it to you as well? Yeah, what happened was, of course, it all, you know, a committee came together and uh, Arthur ended up sort of spearheading it and uh, did a really terrific job, actually. Right, and uh, what did you think when this when this idea was first put to you? Were you immediately enthusiastic about it or did they have to convince you to get on board with it? Well, I confess I was pretty supportive <laughs> just okay. as, a, as a sports fan and the, the idea of sort of putting Vancouver on the map. And, and, I, and I'm old enough to remember the Calgary Olympics and it was... And it was really had a big impact uh, on that part of the world. And, you know, one of the things about the Olympics that, you know, gives you an opportunity to sort of expedite or fast track a lot of infrastructure investments, that, which hopefully would have happened at some point, but which, you know, really uh, were slow. And whether that's not just sports facilities, but rapid transit or, you know, look at the highway to Whistler or other things that were developed as part of hosting an international event of this size and magnitude. Right. Right. Did you face any opposition or pushback, though, um, in internally in your government or your cabinet or the NDP? Because, you know, a lot of people, on the, I guess you'd say maybe the left of the political spectrum are not super enthusiastic about these type of things. I remember Dave Barrett famously in the 1970s said, no way would he ever get on board in anything like this. No, no, there was definitely opposition. I mean, yeah. uh, there always is anything this size, and uh, and there was opposition inside the NDP. But, you know, the issue is whether you can host an Olympics 
in a fashion which doesn't jeopardize other values. And I think you can. And I think I think actually to be fair to the Gordon Campbell government, I think they did a, a very good job. And and there was some issues which maybe they could have done better with with respect to displacing people in the downtown east side and others. But as a general proposition, you know, we're left with this tremendous uh, infrastructure, the new convention center I'm look, overlooking it right now, and all the things that came with it uh, yeah. really have had a big impact on, I think, B.C., particularly tourism. Right. Speaking to former B.C. Premier Glenn Clark, I was just reading last night some of the history of the 2010 bid, and there was focus on, was there a key meeting where you gave a speech that you had to, you had to stand up in front of the Canadian Olympic Committee and convince them to go with Vancouver as the official bid city? Yeah, that's correct. It was a, it was quite a, um, a debate because again, Quebec uh, City had kind of the front runner status. Everybody assumed they would win again. They brought with uh, them for this meeting uh, Rocket Richard, who is still Whoa. alive. Whoa. <laughs> I got his autograph, a picture taken with him, actually. <laughs> and then uh, and Calgary brought uh, Ralph Klein, and so they <laughs> they uh, they uh, I was sort of the the BC representative, and it was actually um, it was actually. Uh, Difficult because you know sometimes amongst friends it's a bit harder. You know you're you don't want to slag anybody. I took the position in my speech actually that all three cities would be fantastic uh, venues for the Winter Olympics, and we had no criticism of any of them. And I made a kind of crass argument that really we should choose the city that has the best chance of actually winning the international bid. And I made the case that I thought Vancouver had the best chance of winning. And of course, in a backhanded way, you know, Quebec City had already lost, and there was some flaws in there. There was some flaws pointed out in their presentation, and Calgary had held it before. And at, at that time, the, the Olympics didn't want to go back to a place they'd been to before. So, so we made the argument that that Whistler and Vancouver had the right. very best chance of winning the international uh, recognition. Wow, well, you, and you turn out to be quite prescient on that, for sure. And there's a very famous photo of you and Arthur Griffiths on the day in 1998 when, when Vancouver was named as Canada's official bid city for the Games. I, I tweeted out that photo uh, this morning <laughs> if people want to check it out. I believe that was at Robson Square. Who is that uh, young guy with a mustache? I'm yeah, sure. that's right. It's, you're <laughs> applauding, and uh, Arthur Griffiths looks kind of kind of goofy throwing his hands up in the air but do you do you recall that moment what was that I, like no i certainly do and you know we had a we had a good delegation there and we had uh, we did have some british columbia members of the canadian olympic committee naturally smaller because um you know the country population is mostly in the east but we had some very prominent members charmaine crooks and we had yeah. uh, uh, ian mcdonald uh, les mcdonald excuse me uh from north vancouver they were on the Canadian Olympic Committee, and I think Les McDonald was actually on the International Olympic Committee. So we had some people who were arguing, sort of privately and internally, on our behalf, and uh, it was a, it was actually, as I recall, a pretty close vote, but we mm. managed to pull it off. Okay, so now we're talking about doing this again in 2030. What are your thoughts on that? Should Vancouver try and host another Olympic Games? And your your thoughts? I, I think I think it's interesting. I think first of all, you know, the the main argument that I was just making for the Olympics was the increase in infrastructure and venues and and rapid transit and all those other things uh that's not quite as as um meaningful if he did it a second time and that's why i really like this notion that some people are pushing i think john furlong has talked about it which is a bit more of a regional olympics try something com- almost completely different and see if we can't you know have the games of british columbia games not a vancouver whistler games but one that has events in say uh Cologne or Prince George or Victoria and maybe all the main, you know the big final events might be in Vancouver but I think if we could spread it around I think that really would be kind of exciting for the province because 
as you know, I mean, the feature of Vancouver during the Olympics really boosted our image and our tourism around the world. And I think, you know, this province is so spectacular, you know, featuring, you know, the spectacular, you know, the Okanagan and the north and Vancouver Island really has some, uh, you know, similar potential to both boost investment in right. certain infrastructure, but also the tourism reflection that we get around the world, I think, has real potential. Yeah, I mean, the upsides, I think, are kind of clear on it. But then, of course, there's the cost, and these things are expensive to put on. And speaking of John Furlong, let me play a clip here for you, Glenn, that, the, of course, the former president of the Vancouver Olympic Committee uh, speaking earlier this week to Linda Steele. And he's gung-ho on this idea to go for this again and go for the 2030 Games. And here he is making a case that it won't, it won't cost anything. Here's what he said. We're suggesting that it can be staged without new money. We have all of the facilities from 2010, um, you know, so the idea that we put forward a year ago was that we could actually stage the first fully sustainable Olympics ever, that we could actually deliver what we did in 2010 without any investment in, for capital in government. All of the operations of the Games would be covered by the private sector. So back in 2010, the debate was all around cost and risk and so on. We're not asking those questions. And what we're really saying is, why don't we put the Olympics at the disposal of the community to help the community sort of recover? Okay, Glenn, you're you're now a hard-headed businessman. You got to be working for Jimmy Patterson. Are you uh, are you buying this at all that this thing could be staged with no public money at all? Because I, you know, if, if I used car salesman said something like that to me, I'd be running in the other other direction. But your thoughts? Well, I'm certainly buying it in part because clearly there is a de-risking that happens if you're doing it a second time. We've got excellent people, you know, that worked on the Olympics, and a lot of them are still here. They know what they're doing. John Furlong knows he's doing. We put on a game, so we have this sort of institutional memory and all of this talent here, which really helps to de-risk things in terms of overruns, etc. In addition, we have we do have, as, as John Furlong pointed out, a lot of very good infrastructure, particularly in the lower mainland, to host the game. So that gives us a huge leg up. And remember, the wow. games can be operationally, from an operations point of view, kind of run a profit. So it's really the capital cost that is necessary to host the games there likely would be some it would be modest well, i think much well, more modest but if you if you did what i'm just talking about which is looking at Kelowna and prince george and elsewhere then there might be some capital investment and i by the way i see no problem with that in fact i think mm. it's great for the long term um, of british columbia and i think also with low interest rates today and coming out of this pandemic it could be a very exciting boost for for this province i well, think well, I think you're being a little bit more realistic than uh, than Mr. Furlong. Like when he says that this can be done for with no public in money spent. I mean, I just think that's ridiculous. I mean, you take a look at some of the some of the facilities, like the Richmond Oval. They can't do long track speed skating there anymore. They would have to retrofit that. The Hillside Community Center. They can't do a world class curling there. They would have to be. They would have to retrofit this. I mean, there would. Yeah, the the venues are there, but they would have to be spruced up. There, there's got to be capital costs here. I think I think you're right, Mike. But but yeah. so what? It's modest and uh, and has a long term impact. It doesn't. I mean, why would we worry about? First of all, it'd be a fraction of what the 2010 was, and that was. I think most British Columbians, everybody I know, thinks the the 2010 Olympics were a fantastic experience and yeah. very positive for British Columbia. And if we can do something like that again at a fraction of the cost and spread the benefits around British Columbia, I don't know. I think it's got. It's certainly worth really, really taking a hard look at. Okay, well, we're, we are taking a look at it, and it's interesting to get your perspective on it. Glenn Clark, thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Nice talking. Okay, I appreciate it. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Now, here we go with the battle over carbon taxes and government measures to confront climate change. Did you notice that the price of gas went up overnight? That's because the B.C. carbon tax went up by a little over a penny a liter today. Elsewhere in Canada, the federal carbon tax going up by more than two cents a liter today. Of course, it's all in the name of discouraging the use of fossil fuels and stop climate change. Does it work? Can any government programs actually be effective? Let's discuss now with my guest, Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, Bjorn caused a sensation back in 1998 with his best-selling book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. His new book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and fails to fix the planet. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Bjorn, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it a lot. Let's get one thing um, straight right off the bat here. Now, you are not a climate change denier, right? Like, you accept that no. climate change is real and it's caused by human activity, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, it's, and it's important to say that, right? Because, you know, people might think Unfortunately, you're... Unfortunately, yes. It's, it's become almost necessary to say, look, it is a problem. It's yeah. not the end of the world, as you often hear it, but it is a problem. And obviously, we should fix problems. Right. Okay. Let's talk about uh, carbon taxes and, uh, and other government measures uh, to fight climate change and your experience and your research around the world. Like, are carbon taxes actually having any effect in, in, in working and stopping and reversing climate change? So look, any economist would argue that a smart uh, carbon tax is actually a good idea, but there's a lot of caveats to realizing this. So you're basically taxing a bad, uh, and so right. a smart carbon tax, and especially a globally coordinated carbon tax, can be a real part of the solution. But you also just heard some of the problems here. First of all, it's really hard to imagine that you're going to be able to make this global or even just, you know, uh, cover a vast part of the world's uh, emissions. And if you don't, you're going to get a lot of carbon leakage. You're basically going to move a lot of the emissions outside the area where you're taxing carbon. But the second part, and I think this is where you often go amiss, and we certainly have in Europe, uh, you tax carbon. You tax it wildly differently depending on where it's emitted simply because it makes political sense, but it makes very little economic sense. And what you end up doing is you don't then stop subsidizing, for instance, solar and wind. If you've taxed carbon, you don't also subsidize solar and wind because you're implicitly already subsidizing it. And, and so there's a lot of knock-on effects that you often forget when you do a carbon tax. And then, and that's the final bit, and then I'll stop, uh, yeah. you need to remember, even if you do this smartly, a yeah. realistic carbon tax will only solve a smaller part of the problem of global warming. So it's one part of the solution, but it's not the main part, and it's very easy to screw up. One of the very common complaints that we hear here in Canada, Bjorn, is that when we take a look at Canada's 
emissions as a percentage of global emissions around the world or even bring it closer to home here in our own province of British Columbia, people will say, well, why are we inflicting this carbon tax on ourselves when we're just such a tiny percentage of the of the emissions in the on the planet like it won't make any difference to the planet mm. as a whole why don't you go after china the united states india you know these other big emitters like are they pitching in are those other big emitter countries are they are, are they bringing in carbon taxes well well clearly we're not seeing a carbon tax in the u.s it's yeah. politically very toxic uh, and, and likewise, it's very unlikely that we're going to see a widespread. Uh, there is some uh, uh, starts attempts in, in China uh, and very little or nothing in India. Uh, and, and it brings a, home a very important point. Global warming is not going to get fixed unless you're able to cut emissions across the board with everyone. Right. But of course, it also doesn't make sense to just say, look, we're just a small part, so we're not going to give, give a damn. You need to say well, we need to find a solution that actually works so that everyone will do this. And a carbon tax can be part of that solution. But remember, the real problem with global warming is that you need to stop emitting CO2 that usually comes from cheap fossil fuels that drive the global economy. If you're right. going to get people to switch, you basically have to focus on innovation. If you focus on mm. telling everyone, we're going to try to make fossil fuels so expensive you can't afford them, that's never going to work in democracies. It's not going to make anyone pleased over the next 20 years. But if we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch, not just people in, in Canada and nice, well-meaning people across the Western world, but also the people in China in India and Africa and Latin America, everywhere else. So the idea here is to recognize carbon tax it can be a small part of the solution but the real solution is to focus on innovation innovation is always yeah. what has solved problems for humanity okay speaking of bjorn lomborg a best-selling author he's president of the copenhagen consensus uh, the title of your new book is is quite provocative how climate change panic costs us trillions and hurts the poor how does it hurt the poor so fundamentally if you're panicked, you're likely to make bad decisions. One of the many bad decisions that we're now thinking about doing in Canada is actually thinking about doing is because we're worried that we're putting up so high carbon taxes, we are thinking, oh, wait, that's going to you know, get a lot of these emissions to flow out to other countries like China and India. So we're going to put yeah. carbon ta tariffs up. We're basically going to tax third world country imports according to their carbon uh, uh, content. That sounds like a good idea, but what it actually turns out to do is it will make it much worse for the developing countries. It'll increase uh, the number of people in poverty from you know, tens to even hundreds of millions extra uh, poor in 2030. That's terrible. And it's just one of the many ways that we're basically saying, no, no, I care so much about climate change that I'm going to enact policies that will actually make it harder to be poor because the poor Remember, they don't really care all that much about temperature rises in 100 years. They care about the fact that their kids might die from easily curable infectious diseases tomorrow. They don't mm. have enough food. They don't have good education. These yeah. very simple things first. Okay. You, you, you talk about climate change panic and that this is – and maybe people are overreacting to what we're facing – I mean, if you just watch the news every day, we got hurricanes, we got wildfires raging, you got glaciers cracking up and falling apart, we got fears about rising sea levels. I mean, shouldn't people be a little panicked or worried about that? 
So, so there is definitely a problem. Sea levels are rising, and that's because of global warming. But you should also recognize we know how to fix this. And Holland, obviously, is a very, very good example of this. We're not going to see lots and lots of millions of people being flooded. We know how to fix this at very low cost. Now, we'd still prefer well, not So how to do you do that? You mean you build, you, build, uh, you build dikes? Yes, and yeah. well, and sea defenses. It's not going to be nearly as dramatic as most people think. When you look at hurricanes, sure, there are a lot of hurricanes on CNN. But if you actually look at the number of hurricanes or the strength of hurricanes, so the best number that we have uh, for the last 120 years is number of landfalling hurricanes to the U.S. Those have actually been declining, not increasing. You heard a lot about this record-breaking uh, year of 2020. It was record-breaking because we have lots of satellites, and it was record-breaking for the North Atlantic. But if you look at the total amount of hurricanes across the world, it was actually a very weak. It was one of the weakest uh, years in the, uh, right. in the satellite uh, era, so over the last 40 years. Oh, okay. Again, the point Wh is not to say that there's no problem, but it's yeah. vastly mag magnified by the way that you, what's called the CNN effect, that you see every hurricane, that you hear about every catastrophe, and then you get this sense, oh my God, everything is going worse, when in fact, things are generally moving in the right direction, but global warming is one of the problems. Okay, when people hear you make that argument, that's when they start to say, oh, wait a minute, now, now he's showing his real face here. He really is a, he really <laughs> is a denier. You know, it's not as bad as, yes, as what we say. And, and, and I, I, I get that that could be the point, but if you yeah. actually look, so we have a good database called the International Disaster Database that right. looks at how many people have actually died from climate-related disasters. They also look at all kinds of other disasters over the past 120 years. And what they find for the last 100 years where we have good data is on average, about half a million people died from floods, droughts, uh, uh, storms, extreme temperatures uh, in the 1920s. Last decade, it was below 20,000 people. What that tells you is, and, and so it's been constantly going down. Why is that? Because much better uh, 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 endowed societies, so that is basically richer and more resilient societies, die a lot less from catastrophes. This does not mean that there's not a problem with global warming, but right. the idea that things are getting worse and worse is mediated by the fact that we are richer and better able to tackle it. That means we have reduced the number of people dying over the last 100 years from climate-related disasters by about 95%. You don't hear that because you hear every catastrophe and now you hear every every time just a few people die this does not mean global warming is not a problem but it gives you a sense of proportion so the un tells us and let me just give you this because sure. the un climate panel tells us that in about 50 years the impact of global warming if you try to quantify it in amount of dollars what it would be the equivalent impact on our on our income it will be negative that's why it's a problem somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of your income. Remember, that means it's a problem. Remember, by then, the UN estimate each one of us will be 363% as rich as we are today. So instead of being 363% as rich, we'll be 356% as rich. That is a problem, but it's certainly not the end of the world. And that's the important part that you get this idea that we're almost going to be down to zero, that we're going to all be, going to be poor or maybe eradicate. That's not the right. We're going to be less well off than if we didn't have global warming. That means it's a problem, 
That also means we should fix it. But we need to be careful that we don't end up spending so much money that we actually spend more resources in trying to fix the problem than the actual problem would cost. Okay. Interesting perspective. As always, you've given us a lot to think about and talk about. Thanks a lot for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Mike. Those aboard BC ferries are not happy that indoor dining on the fleet's vessels has been exempted from the new COVID-19 public health order. You'll recall that order earlier this week, shutting down indoor service in restaurants, but you can still eat on the cafeterias on board the ferries. Let's discuss now with my guest, uh, Graham Johnston, who is the provincial president of the BC Ferry Workers Union. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Graham, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for being here. So is this correct now that BC Ferries, so there's still in-person dining in the cafeterias on the ferries, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, from your earlier comments, I just want to say this. Uh, I don't. I don't think a lot of our members are really truly upset that there's uh, dining still going on on the ferries. I think what they're really upset about is there's an exception that's been made to allow folks to continue in a high risk activity, which is dining in person on BC ferries, and yet ferry workers have been given no consideration to be prioritized for a vaccine. It seems completely backwards to us. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from uh, BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming Graham, and and here he is uh, commenting on why the cafeterias on the ferries are still open. Rob Fleming, when you have people that are either getting to or from uh, a sailing that, including the crossing time, might be as long as four hours, obviously. Uh, food and meals are important to people, so that service shouldn't be suspended. It should be continue to be done in a very safe manner. Okay, so he's saying that they will continue to have. Uh, safety measures in place. Like, what are they doing on the ferries? Are they spreading out, spreading people out in the in the cafeteria? Well, it's the exact same thing we've been doing all along, which yeah. has worked fairly well. But you know, we're really worried about what that looks like in the face of these new, uh, more uh, more catchy uh, uh, variants of concern that are in yeah. front of us. And you know, if COVID's so dangerous that we have to shut down all of these restaurants around the province, what's different at BC Ferries? Right. And, uh, and, you know, for us, we understand because the minister is right. You know, we have some long crossings. In fact, some that go as long as 14 hours. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we understand that people uh, need to eat on those, those sailings. But if, if that's the priority of government, if that's what we're going to focus our energy on, then how do we make sure the people providing that service are protected? And that means vaccinating. Okay, let me play another clip here for you, Graham. This is Carl Campbell, who is a catering services attendant, uh, talking about the safety of the job. As a catering attendant, I do the same work as pretty well every other restaurant worker. It's a betrayal from the provincial health office. If we're not able to cease operations because of our essential services, we should be vaccinated. Okay, no, it is kind of interesting that you've got the provincial health order saying that dining in a restaurant indoors is too risky. We're shutting that down but it's still okay to do it aboard a BC ferry. So do you, you sort of see that as, what, a contradiction? Oh, well, I don't know how you could frame it any other way. Yeah. Uh, you know, but there's, a, there's another reality at play here, which is this, you know, all the cafeterias and hospitals remain open, and for good reason. And we're, you know, I don't want to make that as a direct comparison to what we do, um, but we also do an essential service that, you know, is... 
absolutely required for people moving around the coast. And so I can see an argument to be made for food service uh, on BC ferries. Uh, and, and we don't necessarily begrudge that. What we do begrudge is if it is such a high risk activity, you're going to shut it down everywhere else, then make sure that we're being given the proper PPE, make sure we're being given the proper safety equipment to do the job. And in the face of COVID, the only thing that works that we know of at this point is, is vaccination. Right. Okay. So you're out, you're calling for essential service designation for BC ferry workers to get priority access to the vaccine, like, like some other essential workers have, have received already. Well, the, the ministry and the PHO recognize us as, as essential. We've mm-hmm. been on the front line of this thing since day one. Ferry operations have not stopped. Uh, you know, we had to, to work through it uh, the entire time. And uh, now we're being told to, to participate in uh, a high-risk activity, food service, uh, through this portion of the pandemic while all other food services shut down. And yet the PHO somehow, Dr. Bonnie Henry somehow, thinks that we don't need to be vaccinated, but we should still be serving hamburgers. And, you know, that, that's, that's a betrayal. Okay, is, has there been any documented spread of COVID on board a ferry? Yeah, absolutely there has. Yeah. Uh, and, and usually that's actually between crew. So, uh, you know, the, the folks who are working in galley and kitchen situations, um, that's where a lot of the spread in restaurants happen. And that's what we're really concerned about, you know, with food services aboard our ship. But it's not just the folks in the galley, because everybody's working in pretty tight quarters, especially when we're doing drills or faced with an emergency situation. Um, people are, are well within two meters space of each other. And, uh, you know, for us, uh, we look at our job and the safety critical work we do as, as something essential. And we yeah. want to be able to carry on doing that safely. Uh, and, you know, in this case, it seems like the provincial health officer has determined that that includes serving hamburgers, which is fine, but then give us the vaccine. Right, right. Speaking to Graham Johnston, he's the president of the BC Ferry Workers Union. So just so I'm clear here, Graham, when you say that, yeah, there has been some documented spread of COVID on, on ferries, you're saying that's between uh, between crew workers. So there has been some documented case of BC Ferries workers uh, passing the virus to each other. Is that correct? Well, that's, yeah, that's where um, cases of, of uh, uh, you know, spread between employees uh, have been. Uh, yeah. Between, uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to say that there's been a, a documented uh, instance of of an outbreak where a passenger has gotten a whole bunch of people sick. But what does happen is one ferry worker uh, will get sick and then through their continued and ongoing exposure in close quarters work environments like galleys or kitchens on board the ferries, yeah. uh, they spread it to other ferry workers. And, uh, you know, we've seen some service disruptions from COVID positive cases uh, where sailings have been cancelled and uh, things have been delayed. And, uh, you know, I, again, I'll point to this. Dr. Bonnie Henry thinks that the uh, food service industry is too high risk to continue doing it, except on BC ferries where we have to keep doing it. And, uh, and you know, hasn't, hasn't thought that we're essential enough to be vaccinated. And that's a kick in the teeth. Okay, I'm sure you have made representations to the, the health the health authorities to to get the vaccine for your union members. What have you heard from from the authorities? Like, have they given you any explanation of why why ferry workers have not been designated to get the vaccine early? We've written the provincial health officer uh, multiple times, and they have never once written back. 
I'll say this. We've talked to the Minister of Transport, and he has been very responsive to our concerns. And uh, he's he's advocated on behalf of ferry workers. So, you know, I thank him and his office for that work. But the PHO doesn't seem to care. How many workers are we talking about here? Well, the total uh, operational size of of BC Ferries would be around 4,000, 4,500. Um, but in terms of folks who serve on the front lines for ferry workers, it's a smaller number, probably 2,500. Okay, and so would you be would you say they should get the priority priority access to the vaccine? Like if you took those those 2,500 or so workers, they should get the vaccine right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And short of that, I mean, right now they're not receiving the vaccine. Do you think that in the interim until until your people are vaccinated, should food service continue on the ferries, or would you like to see the cafeterias actually shut down? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think that there are some instances where food service needs to be maintained. And, you know, you talk about those 14-hour, 7-hour long routes. Um, those are areas where it must be continued. And, and in fact, ferry workers on those routes have been vaccinated now because of oh. their incongregate living setting. Although they were missed on the first pass, we had to raise hell to, to get them vaccinated. Um, but, oh, you know, so, on, some, on other, so, so some ferry workers have received the vaccine? The, the ones who work in, in incongregate living spaces and some folks in Horseshoe Bay who were part of a large outbreak, uh, uh, from COVID, yeah, they've they've been vaccinated now. Are those are those people like working on the on the longer ferry runs on the sort of north coast? Is that which? Yeah, that's the, correct. Yeah, that's okay. correct. Yeah. yeah, and and so you know when I look at those ones, I say yeah, absolutely, food service should continue, and 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 the right things happen there. They have been vaccinated, but I mean, if we're not going to give people the appropriate safety equipment to do the work, but we're going to tell them to do it anyway, then no, I don't think the work should continue. Right. This is kind of a scary moment here in this uh, pandemic. We had over a thousand cases yesterday, the highest one day total ever. Who knows? We could get a thousand more uh, coming confirmed this afternoon. What are you hearing from your people kind of on the front lines on the ferry system? Are they worried? I mean, do they see people uh, not following rules? Do they see a lot of people traveling? Uh, Are they worried about increased travel here this weekend with a long weekend coming up? Of course, they're worried. A lot of our folks are scared, and and rightfully so. And I think for them, it seems uh, crass that they're there uh, serving food to pleasure travelers uh, who have every right to travel, uh, uh, you know, during this time. And yet the government doesn't see fit to have them vaccinated. Uh, and, And, you know, I get it. Like, I share that anger. I share that outrage. And I think it's only fair. And we call on the provincial health officer to make sure that this this wrong gets righted. Okay, thank you for coming on today with your comments. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with the president of the Ferry Workers Union. Let's go right to your phone calls here now. Rhonda in Vancouver. Hi, Rhonda. Oh, hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. What do you think? Uh, You know, I think that the ferry workers should definitely be vaccinated. I'm actually a flight attendant. And we serve food and drinks on board. However, we're not considered an essential, essential enough that we're getting vaccinated. So, you know, I'd really encourage the ferry workers to bring in all transport uh, professionals into their fight. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I certainly can understand how you feel that way. What, what is it like to work as a, uh, as a flight attendant these days? You know, it's really challenging. Um, you know, we're, we're scared uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we, are, we are exposed to COVID fairly frequently. I was just talking to a flight attendant today. She's had seven COVID calls that she's been exposed on seven flights. Wow. And then we get taken off. Um, the flights are very busy, too. You know, people are coming in from, you know, different destinations on other airlines and then flying within Canada okay, and full. Rhonda, thank you for the call. I hope you stay safe. Appreciate that. Linda calling from Vancouver Island. Hi, Linda. Hi. Hi. Uh, yes, I think Mr. Horgan is totally wrong on this, as I believe he's totally wrong on many things. Now, I just had a friend. It took quite a while for him to be able to fly back to Arizona. The Vancouver airport was very well handled. Very few people and the plane had very few people on it. When he got to San Francisco, that was a different thing. Lots of people. But as far as the BC Ferries, if yeah. we're shutting down all restaurants, I think BC Ferries also should be shut down. From Vancouver to the island or from the island back, you're just over two hours. You yeah. do not have to expose people if you are not going to vaccinate them okay okay linda thank you for that lots of calls here let's go to joy on the line in nanaimo hi joy hi thanks for taking my call sure um i i I just took the ferry over and i i was fortunate enough to be on the top deck but i did not go up to have food service because i was thinking these poor folks if there is if there is food service i wasn't sure there was it's not fair to them to be exposed to the passengers it's only two hours you can pack a sandwich. You can you can tough it out for a couple of hours. You don't have to have the food. And if they choose to keep it open, I believe that the ferry workers, like a lot of other frontline workers that are not being um, being shortlisted or, or vaccinated quickly, quickly as possible, are not being um, dealt with either. Uh, first responders aren't on the list of getting vaccinations, which I think is incredible. Oh, no, the first res- the first responders are getting the vaccine. I know a first responder personally that works in Vancouver, and he's not getting a vaccine. Hmm. What kind of job does he have? The Vancouver Fire Department. Wow, okay. I think they are getting the vaccine. Okay, but thank you thank you for that, Joy. Chris in Coquitlam. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, eating is a, is a tricky thing. I, I get, you know, people want to. It should be closed down, but my, my biggest concern is, you know, the head boss there guy is saying, that his workers aren't being considered. No workers were considered until the longest time. My kid's teacher gets told, put on a mask, but then, you know, have 30 kids take off their masks and eat now and be in a closed space. They can't eat outside. That's not allowed. But eating in a small classroom where everybody is chomping at the bit is allowed. And so this PHO, to me, you know, it's like the Canucks. They start off really strong, and then they disappoint, (laughs) disappoint, disappoint. Okay, but the teachers are going to get priority access to the vaccine they, now, though. They, they are going to get priority. Right. But, you know, at the same time, though, Yeah. I, I can almost guarantee, you know, Surrey is getting the call right now. There's, yeah. what, 50 districts? By the time that they get through all the districts, it's just going to go to the age brackets. I mean, it, it's, oh. all, it's all face value of saying we're going to prioritize you. But most teachers are like, you know, average age 40 years old. What are they going to wait? Another two, three weeks? Before well, especially with, especially with the AstraZeneca restrictions that have come in now. Chris, thank you for that. I appreciate all your calls on the open line on that one. If- 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about British Columbia's surging case count of COVID-19 showing no signs right now of slowing down. Yesterday, uh, the province recording its highest ever single-day total for new COVID cases, 1,013 new cases reported by the province. Yesterday, we've got another live update coming at 3 p.m., this afternoon could it be another thousand or more uh, confirmed later today uh, let's discuss now with my guest jason kindrachuk canada research chair in the department of medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the university of manitoba one of canada's top experts and i'm very pleased to welcome him back jason thanks a lot for coming on hey thanks for having me on mike this is a really troubling period in the pandemic here with this surge that we're seeing, a record single-day case count in British Columbia yesterday. Is this going on across the whole country? Like, are, is every province seeing a surge like this right now? Yeah, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing, uh, you know, some components of that in, in virtually every province. I mean, the, the Northern Territories and, and certainly the Atlantics, uh, the, the Atlantic uh, provinces have, have actually, you know, avoided this so far. Manitoba is in kind of a weird position there. You know, they certainly have cases, but it hasn't surged like it has in Saskatchewan or Ontario. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's becoming widespread. And I think it's a matter of time for, for most of the provinces, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's really troubling. When you hear a case count like that for British Columbia, single day record over a thousand new cases, what does that say to you? Like what jumps out at you with that number? Well, I think what jumps out at me is, is honestly that we're, you know, we're, we're well back into the third wave, right? And, and I think the, the, the really, the, the thing that jumps out, you know, most to me is this idea that we're all exhausted. The, the light at the end of the tunnel is certainly very bright. It's very close, but we're not there yet. And there's that concern that resonates of, can we get through this with as little damage as possible and as quickly as possible? Or are we going to be in this for, you know, for, for quite a, a few weeks? Okay, what about the variants? That seems to be of key concern here to public health officials. What do we know about these variants and how concerned should we be about them? Yeah, you know, when people ask me how concerned I am, listen, I, I'm probably sitting at around an 8 or a 9 on a scale of 10 as to how I feel about them. We, we've known since really you know, kind of the very late fall, early winter, that, that the variants were, were spreading very rapidly in different regions of, of the globe. So we saw, obviously, what happened in the UK, what happened in South Africa, and obviously what, what happened in Brazil. Um, you know, I, I think for us, you know, we've all kind of sat back and watched and said, listen, if the variants get into the country, and if they start to spread through the community, we will be in trouble very quickly unless there are heavy restrictions or we get everybody vaccinated. Um, and unfortunately, as the, the variants started to pick up Steam, we didn't see, uh, you know, either of those other two factors come in to slow down spread, at least at a fast enough pace. So that that is a concern to me. And, and we're seeing the skew towards younger age groups that are ending up in the hospital, which is something we haven't really seen in the pandemic otherwise. And that, you know, that's different. It's very different yeah. to see people my age or younger or a little bit older that, that are ending up on ventilators. Mm. Oh, man. Speaking of Dr. Jason Kinderchuk from the University of Manitoba, does the do the vaccines work on the variants? Yeah, so the, the good news is, for the most part, yes. Certainly Pfizer and Moderna have shown some really good data. We're seeing very positive results for B117 and B1351. We think for P1 that uh, even though it has some ability to, to evade immune responses, it looks like at least antibodies in people that are vaccinated we'll still recognize it. So I, I think we're in good shape that way. 
The biggest mm-hmm. question is we need to get vaccines out and, and yeah. so we're limited. We, we don't have supply, right? Yeah, no, that is, you know, the vaccine, like you mentioned about the the light at the end of the tunnel. And a few weeks ago with the vaccine coming in and, and starting to be distributed, I think a lot of people were feeling very optimistic, like, let's get these vaccines going as quickly as possible. Now we've got this surge. So it's almost like it seems like it's a race right now between the vaccine versus versus the virus. Like, are you still confident that the vaccine is our ticket out of this thing? Like, is this, is the vaccine going to going to kill this thing off? Well, it's, it's a combination, right? I mean, like, certainly we're getting more information from the vaccines that are suggesting that not only do they protect us from severe disease, which is the most important factor, but they likely decrease infectivity as well, which we've seen with, with recent data from Pfizer. So that's, that's good. But in regards to, you know, the race, I think the problem is the variant spread too, too quickly. Certainly B117 is spreading far too fast for us to be able to vaccinate enough people to, to get control of it. So you still rely on those additional infection prevention and control measures. And, and you have to have buy-in from the public and also enforcement uh, as well. So it's, it's very complicated. Listen, this, this is why I'm a virologist and not a public health expert. So, Yeah, you mentioned that right now your concern level is at around uh, an 8 or 9, you know, which is... I think a lot of people are really concerned. Has your view or outlook or analysis of this pandemic changed significantly here in the last few weeks with this surge? Yeah, you know, it really has, right? I mean, the, you know, the days when AstraZeneca first started getting, uh, you know, kind of doled out across country, certainly I was I actually felt very optimistic. You know, we were starting to get control of this. We certainly had our most high-risk groups uh, protected. We looked like we were going to be getting closer to getting those essential non-healthcare workers protected. And the rug got pulled out a little bit from underneath us with, with the AstraZeneca news and, and certainly the cessation yeah. of vaccination with, with that vaccine. So, yeah, it, it has changed. And again, seeing those younger age groups showing up in the hospital, that's, that's something, I, you know, for me, I think we always assumed it could happen. Um, but now I think for, for Canadians, it's going to be the question of, is this going to be enough for people to start to, to maybe take those additional precautions that they had before to try and, and keep people out of the hospital. Yeah, speaking of young people getting sick and ending up in the hospital, we had Premier John Horrigan here in British Columbia earlier this week sort of call out young people and encouraging, telling this, you know, basically telling young people, stop partying and you're going to, he said, don't blow it for the rest of us, as he put it. And there's been controversy around that comment, whether he should have called out young people in that manner because obviously not all young people are breaking the rules, but do you think in some ways he's got a point when you talk about, you know, you mentioned some young people showing up in hospital? Well, it's so difficult, right? I mean, listen, all of us have, have had those moments where, where maybe we could have taken more precautions, and certainly uh, that spreads across all age groups. I think the difficulty is, is that we also are in a country where we look at, at people that are working those, those frontline non-healthcare uh, worker jobs, that a lot yeah. of those people fall into that same age category. And that's where I look at it and say, probably not the best timing on that statement. Okay. The public health measures uh, that we see being imposed in different parts of the country, we're seeing some lockdown measures in Ontario. Here in British Columbia, we just had new health orders this week, uh, shutting down in-person dining, indoor dining and restaurants. We see some other measures being taken as well, shutting down the Whistler Ski Resort. Uh, what do you think about the public health measures that have been put in place? And do you think a stricter lockdown or a tighter lockdown is what's required right now? 
Yeah, you know, my, my concern is that we're getting into, again, this kind of cyclic, uh, almost kind of pseudo-lockdown stage again, where we're going to put some restrictions in. We're not going to fully shut things down. We're probably going to suppress cases a little bit, but as soon as we start to go back to reopening, we're going to see a surge gain. And, and, that, and listen, that's, people are getting tired of that aspect, and it gets difficult to keep messaging to say, we just need to get through this when, when people aren't seeing that benefit in that and that response. So I, I kind of keep going back to this idea of, listen, if we did a, a, a true lockdown, could we get this under control, especially because we have variants that are transmitting so widely and so quickly? I'm, I'm very concerned that we're not going to have enough restrictions to, to really control the variants at this point. All right, welcome back. My guest is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, University of Manitoba. Your calls too, and we got lots of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Adam on the line in Delta. Hi, Adam. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. So I, I just, I'm hoping you guys can maybe, I'm going to create a scenario and maybe you can point out where my flaw and in my thought process is. I work in a manufacturing industry, and when we encounter problems, we typically tend to try and focus on the biggest areas of problems that create the most downtime for us. And we don't really pay much attention to the smaller issues because it doesn't impact our production. If I look at it in the same way here, um, and using Stats Canada, because BC is actually not very transparent with outbreaks, restaurants and bars are less than 1% of our problem. Manufacturing transmissions, school transmissions, airport transmissions, trumpet for sure. Why are we focusing our area on these small areas instead of focusing on the big ones? That's what would make sense to me, and that's why I'm not really supportive of what do, these what decisions do you think, that Von Hennis. What do you think they should do? Well, if, if it is as big a problem as people are saying to the point that we're shutting down bars and restaurants yeah. that are like 1% of the problem, we should be focusing our attention on the areas that are actually the problem. Oh, okay, Jason Kinderchuk, your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I certainly agree that there's an aspect of, of that that we need to be cognizant of. And, and certainly when we think about this idea of vaccination and getting groups vaccinated where, where we are seeing that that high rate of transmission is important. The problem we get into is when we get into this widespread community transmission, we're no longer at a point where if we just shut one thing down, that that's going to be enough to curtail transmission. Because you're still going to have, even to a limited extent, that transmission in the background, which means cases are still increasing. And you will still hit that exponential curve at, at some point. It may be delayed, but you're going to get yeah. to that same end point. Okay, let's go to Kelly on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, so my question is, Mike, you uh, asked outright to the doctor, um, the, uh, is the vaccine uh, work against the variants? Yeah. Um, doctor spe- specified and re- answered your question, but only uh, used Moderna and Pfizer saying they worked. And I, my question is, does AstraZeneca work against the variants? Okay, Jace, Jason. Yeah. So, so AstraZeneca, certainly for B117, we're seeing good data, certainly coming out of the U.K., They've been able to curtail um, a lot of their transmission based on just using AstraZeneca and Pfizer. So certainly looks like it works very well. For B1351, it certainly didn't work uh, nearly as well uh, as Pfizer mm-hmm. Moderna. So there, there is going to be some retooling. Johnson & Johnson, the data at least initially looks like the antibodies that are produced uh, still provide uh, some level of protection. But we, we won't know until we actually start mm-hmm. seeing it being administered uh, much more broadly. Okay, Todd on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Todd. Hello, how's it going today? Good, go ahead. Good. Yes, I just want to make a comment. Um, 
regarding the focus of the of the media and the politicians um back in the last year when this first came down the majority of cases a vast vast majority over 90 percent of the cases were all vancouver west van north van and surrey based now at that time we were all saying you need to do something stringent perhaps an iron ring around approach around the epicenter of this nothing to that sort of effect was ever done and hence it spread out through the rest of bc now the same thing is happening right now where the government and the media is only focused on the bc numbers if you look at the numbers it's back to that epicenter where this is all being caused from and where the super spreading events are happening and there it's still this shut down the entire province attitude like what is your comments on that yeah okay so there has been we covered this on the show yesterday actually whether there should be regional restrictions based on the amount of covid circulating in a a community but uh, jason kinderchuk do you have any thoughts on that yeah, you know, again, regional shutdowns work well if you can fully restrict any movement in or out. And, you know, here in Saskatchewan, where I am right now, you know, we, we've had basically a, a massive increase in, in B117 of Regina. They went to trying to restrict and, and, and in implementing restrictions in the city. But we've already seen that those cases have now leached out into places like Moose Jaw and, and the surrounding area. So I think, again, you get in this issue of even if you shut down 95%, of, of transmission with the variants of concern that 5% that you haven't been able to shut down is still going to have an effect. And I think that's the bigger mm-hmm. concern is will you still be able to curtail things province wide if you do just a, a regional mm-hmm. uh, shutdown. Okay. Rick on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Rick. Hello there. Hi, go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, so I just turned 57 and uh, I really feel like uh, now I'm stuck and I'm going to have to take AstraZeneca. And uh, from what I'm hearing, I don't like it, and uh, I'm not going to take it. I'm in the education industry here, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go for Pfizer if I can. Okay, well, you certainly have the option to wait, as it's been, uh, as it's been described by the government. What do you think, though, uh, Jason, about you know people who are looking at the effective rate of these vaccines and saying, like, well, you know, I'd rather have the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, you know, certainly the past couple of weeks in, in regards to messaging campaigns and, and PR, AstraZeneca has, has certainly hurt themselves. Yeah. And it's, it's troubling. It's, it's a great vaccine. It works very well. Um, you know, certainly the, the, the side effects, we, we need to figure out what is going on behind that. Um, but we're now back into this issue of we've lost a lot of confidence in, in that vaccine. And we're back towards Pfizer and Moderna, which it, 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 they're great vaccines. But the question is, can we get enough? fast enough to be right. able to get so, immunized. So would you therefore say your recommendation would be if you were offered the AstraZeneca vaccine, would you say to take it? I, I would. I and my family would take it in a second because yeah. of the fact that, that it's worked so well. Jason Kendrachuk, thank you very much for your time today and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Mike.